This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. This is episode 594. Uh, I think I raised uh, over $100 million of private venture money at this point uh, from my companies. How you manage that process, how you summarize your company, uh, what you're about, uh, why the opportunity is large, how are you going to win, why do you have the right team on board, how you have operations focused, uh, what are your early wins. Um, so that whole aspect of being a small company CFO has been uh, always been very fun and intriguing for me. And Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's episode, we speak to Chris Mosler, CFO of Peer Nova, a data governance company. Chris launched his finance career inside the FP&A ranks of IBM Corp, where he spent a decade acquiring greater responsibility before becoming director of FP&A for Informex. From there, he segued his way into the land of startups, where he claimed the missing piece to his finance leadership puzzle, raising money. When to do it, how to do it, who to do it with. Chris shares this and more on today's episode. We begin after this. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu, and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful at planful.com. We're speaking to Chris Mosler, CFO of Peer Nova. Chris, welcome. Thank you, Jack. Glad to be here. Chris, we always like to begin uh, by asking our guests to look back for us and sharing with us some of those experiences they feel helped develop them as leaders and prepared them for CFO roles. What comes to mind for you? Yeah, I think I'll start uh, with my uh, very big first experience. So I, I grew up in the East Coast. I uh, graduated from business school in Columbia, New York, and I, I set out for Silicon Valley and I started my first job with IBM. So a uh, big $60, $70 billion company. Um, and I, to this day, I call it my financial boot camp uh, in terms of the, the things I learned uh, at, at that company. Um, and, and one theme I'll probably talk about today is just the variety of different assignments and roles I had at IBM in those 10, 11 years. And um, 
how I felt it kind of prepared me uh, for, for later challenges to come. I'll, I'll highlight just a few. Uh, you know, one was uh, FP&A. Uh, most of my time in IBM was dealing in uh, FP&A type of roles, uh, working with functions, uh, divisions, uh, and to a little extent at corporate. And um, really taught me the basics of uh, sort of what you uh, you learn in business school about uh, doing business case analysis on products. Um, IBM had this thing, uh, this group called pricing. Uh, they kind of this elite SEAL team. They took people. And um, that's what you do. You look at products coming out of development, uh, you develop the business case for them, you take it up to senior leadership uh, to sort of approve the ROI in the project to go forward. And given this IBM, these are usually very large dollars involved. And um, you know, that sort of mentality I took to this day now that I'm in, I'm in startup roles. Um, the, the second piece, uh, second job I'll highlight is I was uh, one of my first managers, managerial assignments was uh, an accounts payable manager at IBM. Now that doesn't sound all that exciting, perhaps, uh, but uh, it was my first manager job, so I kind of taught the IBM way of how to how to manage, how to lead. Uh, they even had a management school internally at IBM. This is going back a ways. Uh, bigger companies did things differently, and um, I was in charge of the, the fate would have it. They had kind of regionalized a lot of their services, uh, and this was out in San Jose, California. So this was kind of the Western region for IBM, and uh, I forget the exact number, but it was something like $3 billion worth of cash was flowing through the accounts payable group uh, through the site that I, that I was managing. And, um, you know, IBM being what it is, a uh, fairly well-run, disciplined sort of company that you, that you might think, um, I certainly learned the, uh, the, in the early phases of my career why, you know, how to, how to work through those, what are the right process controls, what are the control points, um, how do you build your team to follow them to get the best outcomes, et cetera. Um, I've uh, I've actually carried that. I've had a number of audits going through that at that time because there was so much money flowing through that group, and uh, the sort of the principles I learned there I've taken to this day. Now, you also kind of learn after ten years of IBM. IBM is a bigger company, uh, very well run uh, in most aspects, but can be a bit bureaucratic. Um, is most probably the downside most folks would 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 point to having worked there, and um, that kind of set me in motion to do. Uh, you know the, the the other things in my career that I that I moved on to. Um, the the second thing I'd like to highlight, uh, and I'll kind of group these into I guess my mid phase of my career, just for the, the sake of the narrative. Um, you know, working my way down into some uh, kind of medium sized companies, um, and uh, I was in a uh, FP&A role at Xilinx, uh, a semiconductor company uh, headquartered out here in Silicon Valley. Uh, and I was there for uh, approximately six years. Um, again, great company, great culture, um, great management practices. I had a half the time there I was in running the kind of the corporate FP&A uh, kind of role. Uh, the second half of my time there was uh, running one of the, the large business units um, uh, that was, uh, again, working with you know, large groups of people, uh, again, doing this sort of ROI analysis of pro projects coming out of development, how to bring them to market. Uh, the reason I wanted to highlight this particular experience is because uh, towards the end of my tenure there, it was uh, 2009, uh, and that's when the you know the financial crisis hit the country, uh, the mortgage crisis, um, and you know we the, the country entered into a period of downturn, uh, global downturn, but in the U.S. certainly, and um, you know chip companies uh, being what they are, they they tend to be very cyclical to begin with, but during a downturn, uh, they they cut back very substantially. A lot of restructuring was going on. And um, I ended up, you know, transitioning out of Xilinx during that period. And 
and I'm, I'm using this as an example as part of my experience because um, uh, I'm sure, uh, unlike you know, maybe some other folks out there, this is probably the first time in my career where my career didn't quite go the way I wanted. And uh, I learned uh, some valuable things from that, actually. Uh, it wasn't all that fun at the time, but it, it kind of forced me to think about what I wanted to do, uh, kind of midpoint in my career at that point, what I wanted to do going forward, uh, what kind of roles did I want to be. Um, and, and secondly, uh, it, uh, it, it taught me in intimate ways sort of um, how to manage kind of downturns, challenges, uh, in terms of I'll be run, running other companies the rest of my career, how do you approach those? How do you approach it with professionalism? Uh, you're sort of uh, you're certainly trying to maximize uh, the success of your companies for your stakeholders, um, but I always sort of had this feeling of stewardship for the employees of the company as well. And how do you do the right things uh, to number one avoid <laughs> you know bad situations for the company, but how do you manage through those when they happen? Um, and if I always felt that if you haven't lived through that sort of thing and maybe not had personally lived through that sort of thing, you probably don't approach it the same way. Um, so I've taken taken that with me. Um, and, uh, you know, coming out of Xilinx, actually, that gets me kind of the, to where I've been uh, since then, which is generally working with smaller companies. Uh, uh, they've all been venture-backed startups. And, um, you know, kind of growing into the doing the things that I found that I really enjoy, uh, really love. And that's kind of trying to build uh, uh, generally earlier stage companies uh, into uh, to bigger successful enterprises and building building products, uh, markets uh, from scratch. Um, and, you know, from a finance perspective, I've, I've noticed a couple things in that transition into a smaller company type environments. Um, you know, number one, you, you still have to do the normal finance stuff. Finance is finance. So there's strategic elements of it, the FP&A, how are you guiding your, country, your company forward, making forecast projections, right investments. Uh, there's operational aspects, just like in any company. How do you run things? You have purchasing, you have contracts, uh, you're hiring people, exiting people at times. Uh, there's the basic accounting, tax. You got to keep got to keep thing running. Everything's got to be compliant. Uh, even though you're not a public company, you have investors, you have stakeholders. There's requirements to uh, to have audited financials and so forth. Uh, but there's two aspects of a smaller company uh, that were have been different for me. Um, and again, have provided for me sort of this variety and diversity in my career that I've enjoyed. Um, you know, one is uh, this aspect of raising money. Um, I work in bigger companies, IBM, Quantum, Informix Software, Xilinx, um, having senior roles in those companies in finance, uh, doing FBA, accounting sort of functions. But even though I had touched on uh, treasury type operations in, in, in an indirect way, I had actually never directly raised money before myself. Um, and in uh, each of my startups, this is my fourth startup now, um, I've had the, uh, the pleasure of raising money uh, from VCs. And that's a, it's a unique skill. It's a little bit of an art, a little bit of science. Anyone who's, who's going through it as, as a small company CFO. Uh, I think I raised uh, over $100 million of private venture money at this point uh, from my companies. Uh, certainly raised some, some debt instruments to a lesser degree uh, along the way as well. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a process. So it's very interesting as a discipline to learn. Um, uh, I'm sure there's some companies out there that make their first their first pitch and they get funded with a term sheet, but that's that's not the norm. <laughs> that's not been the norm for mine. Uh, you can end up talking to uh, 100 or so uh, investors, you know, and walk away with one or two uh, uh, term sheets at the end of it. 
and uh, how you manage that process, how you summarize your company, uh, what you're about, uh, why the opportunity is large, how are you going to win, why do you have the right team on board, um, how you have operations focused, uh, what are your early wins. Uh, all that's, uh, that's pretty, pretty good skills to, to develop and learn over time. You don't do it perfectly at start, but you get better at it. And um, there's a little bit of art to the science as well. You know, you got to figure out what investors to go find, who are the best investors for your particular company uh, that would be best for you, that invest in your space, your size of company, your round, et cetera. And um, you know, the interpersonal aspect of it, who, you know, they're looking for a good investment. Obviously, you want the capital to help run your company, but you also want the best partner to help you going forward. Who, who do you want on your board? How are they going to help your, your company grow? Um, so that whole aspect of being a small company CFO has been uh, always been very fun and intriguing for me. And each of my companies have been pretty active in that, uh, taking up a substantial part of my time. And then the, the, the second thing I'll mention about a kind of a smaller company versus larger company is, uh, uh, you know, there's this, all, this, all the sort of G&A functions <laughs> that, uh, that a small company CFO, uh, uh, again, has the uh, unique nature of running. So things like HR, legal, IT, you know, in bigger companies, uh, public CFOs, you certainly have responsibilities in those areas, but there's generally you know, groups in those areas managing it. And especially in earlier stage startups, uh, you're it. You walk in as CFO, you find yourself, you know, for more or less, uh, for better words, running HR, uh, handling legal uh, contacts, issues, contracts, et cetera. And you can certainly uh, work with, with partners and, and outsource providers in that, but you're kind of the guy. <laughs> so you certainly develop skills in a smaller company, kind of hands-on skills that you might not, might not in, a, in a bigger role. Um, so those are kind of the three areas I wanted to, to highlight my, you know, the kind of the beginning of my career at IBM, uh, kind of the mid-level uh, place I got into my career and then how I transitioned into some, uh, to some smaller roles, the startup CFO. Well, that did it for us, Chris, very nicely. Thank you uh, for providing us with such a uh, reflective professional narratives not easy to do especially when you're you're boiling down such different experiences over a period of years or even decades actually so uh, thank you for that i just wanted to uh chris ask um just a few follow-ups i'm wondering and, and you made very clear that you felt you got some wonderful experience at ibm and it really you know turned you into a finance executive brought you up at the same time, you were there 10 years, and I like to ask this question. That's quite an investment of your career time. Looking back, would you like to have left earlier, or was that 10 years uh, entirely well invested? Yeah, great question. Um, the, um, you know, my roles was predominantly out in California, out in San Jose. They had a very large division there, the storage division. Um, I did uh, one tour of duty back in uh, the New York area, uh, working in their in their uh, mainframe enterprise computing uh, division uh, before before coming back to California. And um, you know, for the most part, those were all sort of upward career tra trajectory sort of roles, uh, increasing levels of responsibility. And uh, I kept I kept feeling like I had I was kept learning things, right? I kept getting new experiences. I felt I was growing in my career, uh, but. It did get to that point after after ten about ten year mark, you did have have to sort of make a choice. Uh, IBM was you know named uh, I've been moved for a reason. So for me to keep kind of rising my career, I definitely would have had to go somewhere else again. Uh, IBM was you know more or less an East Coast company based company. Um, you know my wife, whom I love dearly, liked the West Coast as well. <laughs> so it became the stars kind of aligned that it was the right time uh, right around that ten year mark to, to leave IBM 
and uh, you know Silicon Valley uh, uh, continued to grow and boom over the years. The opportunities for someone like me leaving IBM uh, were more and more intriguing over time, and it, it just the stars kind of aligned that that was the right moment for me. Um, I didn't really feel like I stayed too long, but that was clearly the right time to leave. If I'd stayed longer from the folks I've kept in touch with, it would have been harder to leave over time. Now, I just want to point out, once you left IBM, there really was six or seven different companies that you were part of, but you invested uh, two to three years at each of those. And of course, Xilinx, am I pronouncing that correctly? It was at uh, a little more than six years, six and a half years, really. Um, So you invested time all along the way, and you held uh, a number of traditional uh, roles in finance, FP&A, um, and what I'm wondering is, and, and I'm curious about the timing you shared with us before about raising money. Is it where, did you raise any money before you got to Xiling? Um, I actually, actually had not. Um, as part of kind of corporate, corporate FP&A, corporate finance planning groups, I'd certainly participated in efforts to raise money. Um, and um, you're providing support for uh, you know, some convertible debt offerings at one company. Uh, it was a uh, quantum and so forth. But I'd never really been the lead guy. <laughs> never been out there, uh, you know, leading the charge, so to speak. Now, I just point that out because I do think there are a lot of finance executives like you who who climb as far as you did. And okay, there's this missing piece to the finance leadership puzzle that that I have to find. And you did it. So I think uh, you explained it well. And I just wanted to try to get a sense of the time. And again, you were uh, at Xiling uh, roughly uh, 2003 to 2009. The other interesting thing I just want to ask you about, because you expressed it in an interesting way, when you were sort of at that turning point where you sort of told us that it was not a, you were kind of stumped. You you wanted to point yourself in a new trajectory. And I got the sense you didn't say it, but I'm wondering, was that the place in time where you decided uh, I want to be CFO of one of these companies. I'm tired of, you know, I, you know, I'm not going to be middle management any longer. I need to figure out how to get, how to get there. Yeah. Yeah. You're quite intuitive, Jack. Um, the, um, you know, if you'd asked me back in that time frame, you know, what was my career goal? Uh, I almost would have immediately told you it was to be a, you know, public company CFO. That was what I was aspiring to. Right. And, um, but that's when you made up your mind. Look, I'm, either I'm going to do it or I'm not going to do it. Let's do it. And and it seems to me that's where you you suddenly had some momentum. Which is the timing wasn't wonderful. It's coming out of the back end of the a downturn. So I have to believe there was still a lot of uncertainty out there. Yeah, but you know, I, I would say though that you know the, the the roles I've I've migrated to now in terms of these sort of startup CFO sort of positions is not something that I necessarily thought of or aspired to. You know, in the early phases of my career. It's something, it's a little bit of a journey everyone has to go through, right, um, to see where they want to be headed. And, um, you know, fortunately for most of us, it's, it's different for each one of us, but this is the path that I found that I enjoy the most. Yeah, and I, I do think at, at that point in time is interesting. That was sort of a uh, a turning point for the economy. We're in this sort of vague area, of course, now. Maybe that's a kind way of saying it, but I think uh, now's a time where you'd find quite a few finance executives being reflective about their careers, what worked for them in the past, how did they uh, climb the ladder, and setting new goals for the future and move forward. So I want to find out about Pier Nova now, and uh, I'll just flat out ask the question, tell us about Pier Nova. What does it do? What are its offerings? Sure. Pier Nova is a... Exciting companies why I'm here. Uh, we're in the, <clears throat> the broad data 
data space. We, we've developed and are selling a platform uh, that can be categorized as an active data governance tool. And, and let me kind of explain what, what that means and, and what sort of benefit that provides. Um, our main, uh, our first vertical that we're selling into now is, uh, is, is finance, you know, services, financial, larger, tends to be larger financial institutions. And, and most of them have these sort of data issues that I can describe uh, as follows. Think of a large global financial institution. Um, it tends to have many, uh, data is, tends to be fragmented across the institution because they're, they're organized geographically and in functions. Data resides in many, many different systems around the world. Uh, in many cases, uh, larger banks might have grown by acquisition. They're going to integrate different systems and so forth. So they have a tremendous amount of data that they're managing, and yet it's, yet it's fragmented. Um, and the, the challenge for them is to how do you know that your data is correct, right? And uh, the, the tool that we provide is sort of this active data governance tool. So we provide an organized access to data, even though it's spread out over many systems. We have a way of combining it into our platform so that it's organized. Um, characterized, it, there's a lineage associated to the sequence and timing of transactions of actions that are performed on it. And then broadly, we can make assertions as to the correctness of the data. Um, so typical uh, data governments sort of questions would be, uh, you know, where did this data come from? Uh, what do we know about it? Uh, who transformed it last? What state is it in? Can we trust the data? And our platform provides a way of managing that uh, in a centralized, organized way um, such that organizations can act upon it. Um, so it's, again, it's providing that secure access, organized access to data across the enterprise. And then furthermore, we provide um, kind of ground rules and guidelines for the rules of how the data is acted upon uh, from different processes. So think about uh, processes such as reconciling post-trade processing data across the organization, providing liquidity measurements across an organization, doing regulatory reporting across the organization. Uh, generally, financial institutions will be running processes to, to run these sort of um, you know, business uh, goals and, and, and things that they have to do. And our platform provides a way to assert the quality of the data and to manage the process such that business rules and guidelines are being met and that they can they can attest to the accuracy of the data uh, that they generate. Well, those certainly sound like interesting offerings, uh, given this data-minded world that we're all part of today. Uh, we like to find out about the finance leader's mindset as they arrive at the organization. And we like to ask it this way. Was there something you had to do to begin moving the organization in the direction you wanted? Was there... Uh, a reorganization of finance. What would you tell us? Yeah, Pernovo has been very interesting for me. Uh, this is actually uh, probably the first company that I've come to that I've had to sort of build everything from scratch. Um, so when I got here, um, uh, there was uh, a few consulting resources here doing uh, some of the basic bookkeeping. But it came at a very interesting time. The company um, was actually, uh, when it first started, uh, it had some uh, origins in, in, uh, in blockchain. Uh, technology in um, originally doing some things around the concepts of in Bitcoin. Um, and for a small company, when I arrived, uh, there was actually a fair amount of work to do to sort of build an accounting staff around these early business uh, the, these business endeavors. Um, so, you know, I'd hired a, I had a controller, I had a lot of accounting staff. 
Uh, we put the first audit together for the company, you know, bringing the first auditors, the first tax folks to do that. Um, it was um, it was quite interesting in this case because there was a, just a lot of data and, and, and money moving around and we were able to organize it. Uh, and that was kind of my first, one of my first challenges here was, was to build all that out for the, for the company. Did you have, at that place in time, I suspect not, but did you have you know, the visibility into the organization that you require to understand that it's performing the way uh, you hope it will be. Uh, I mean, can you tell us a little bit about your lines of sight, whether you had to begin measuring things, whether you're getting reports regularly? What was the, uh, what was happening exactly? Yeah, no, good question. So in, um, in Pernova's case, um, you know, the, we had, we had good data. Um, it was a question of organizing, get into one place uh, so that we could, we could manage the business. Um, it's been very much of a journey for us as we've raised rounds to build out this platform. Uh, we've had um, working with early customers on projects um, to, to, to grow our business. So the, the most critical thing in, in Pernova that we've worked with is to you know, raise the, the right amount of capital to help get us to the next set of milestones. Uh, making the right set of investments to get to those milestones um, so that you could kind of continue growing the company and um, you know, keeping that kind of growth pattern going. Um, so we're, uh, we're at this point, um, having worked with a number of large institutions, we're in that, in that growth phase of the company where we're ramping up revenue. Um, and it's always been for me trying to balance out uh, you know, how quickly you grow the company uh, to get to the next milestone versus uh, just the, the realization of how much cash you have to, to manage the company until the next round. Uh, it's a unique thing about the venture business. Uh, you got to keep an eye on both. Um, you want to grow, you want to build a company that's growing extremely fast, but you have to optimize that to some extent with, with how much capital you have and you have to organize the milestones you need to hit to get to the next round as well. Can you give us a, a sense of what are those, what are those numbers that you're looking at before your first cup of coffee in the morning? Um, for me, it's looking at um, the, the projection of our, of our sales, our sales pipeline, our engagements that we have. Um, uh, we, you know, we use a tool called HubSpot to help us get that the data. Um, in, our, in our business, because we, we tend to work with larger financial institutions, um, we have a model that, uh, that uh, some of our customers uh, are, are still sort of on on-prem hybrid cloud sort of implementations. Because uh, financial institutions, to, to a certain extent, still can't put a lot of their their data they put onto the cloud for for privacy reasons or risk aversion reasons. So um, you know, as we look at our pipeline of customers, uh, is really seeing are we advancing? Are we advancing in our in our in our growth objectives? Uh, can we project out our sales for the next couple of quarters for the year, et cetera? Are we progressing or not? Um, it's a very very binary for me. It's uh, it's uh, are we are we on track to sort of meet the revenue goals where, where sales goals we're trying to get to? And so, uh, as we mentioned earlier, we're in this new environment with also uh, many unknowns. For the time being, we're asking the question this way. Uh, what steps are you taking to manage uh, the company during these challenging times as the country is still uh, dealing with shelter-in-place ordinances by and large? Uh, what would you tell us? Yeah, a great and very topical question. So, uh, you know, our company is based in California. We we do have resources um, in other parts of the country and the world, but uh, the the bulk of our team is here in California. We are under a shelter-in-place order for uh, several weeks now. 
Um, uh, you know, very challenging in some sense because uh, you're the, how you normally operate the company is uh, you know you walk in one day and it's different. Um, you know, that being said, uh, you know we're Pernova is a software company. You know, we're building an enterprise software platform, data platform, um, and uh, you know we're probably better uh, organized than most to actually work in this sort of work from home environment. So um, I've actually been somewhat surprised how how uh, efficient our company's been able to maintain operations, maintain our focus during these very very challenging times. Um, we we have to um, you know thank our good fortune. I think uh, obviously some other companies are going to have much harder time at it, but as as a software development sort of company, um, you know it's been it's been it's been challenging, but it's been doable. And um, you know to some extent. <laughs> This may seem a little ironic, you know. There, being at home and so forth. Sometimes people have a tendency almost to work twenty four seven. You have the opposite effect. Um, and so, as a management team, we've had to focus on a couple things. Leadership team, as to one, yeah, how do we keep everyone engaged? How we how do we keep everything organized? How we keep everyone focused on the right priorities? But there's certainly a second thing that says, how do we make sure people aren't burning out and not working every waking minute of every day? Um, you know, and for everyone is different. How to keep that, you know, from your, whatever wherever you're working from at home. How do you keep that balance and so forth? But I've noticed a little bit of tendency for people just to work all the time, which is not not the goal here, right? That's not the goal of this. Um, you know, for us, the um, you know, the operational development standpoint, uh, we've I think we've done very well keeping that going. You know, from uh, we've had to start thinking about how we, um, you know, for the next set of customers that we need to go engage with and acquire. Uh, in a world such as we're living with now, how do we do that? We have to tweak our strategy around that, certainly, um, depending on how long this goes. You know, one one thing I would say from the CFO perspective, um, and I mentioned in my in my other answers, you know, being responsible for HR and, and, and GNA sort of items. You know, there's been this sort of massive information flowing on COVID nineteen that you have to respond to. Uh, you know, from, from legislation being passed and so forth. So. You know, part of my role we'll take very seriously is making sure we're passing on appropriate information to employees. Uh, we are understanding the new guidelines coming down of what, um, you know, related to the workforce uh, and programs that folks are entitled to, making sure people are informed, uh, various pieces of legislation. So <laughs> it's almost become like a, you know, a side career just trying to read all that and understand it, you know, and there's a, you know, it's a very unique nature of the, of, the, of the place we're in in the world. So we imagine you're modeling and remodeling. Yeah, I think we're constantly uh, iterating what we what we think this will do to our to our growth path going forward. But um, you know, we're a startup company. We're you know we're, we have a, a long way to grow and, and get much much bigger. We think our market we're in is a huge market potential. Um, so you know, for us, uh, it's not necessarily a, a huge course correction. It's just how do we keep what we're doing? How do we close all the things we have in the near term? And then um, how do we perhaps tweak our strategy? Uh, you know, for the longer term. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you uh, for giving us an update there. We're going to jump to our finance strategic moment question, which is where uh, we call it our signature question uh, because we ask it to one and all, and it allows you to go back over the course of your career. It might be at Pier Nova, maybe not. Could be anywhere uh, along the course uh, where your lines of sight into the organization allowed you to see an opportunity or a risk that you were able to have the organization respond to. 
Does anything come to mind when we ask for a finance strategic? Yeah, move? and I'm going to um, pull an example from a company I haven't mentioned yet, actually, um, just to mix it up. So I work for a company called Informix Software, uh, especially before my Xilinx tenure. Um, very fast growing software company, uh, database company, um, <clears throat> growing uh, 20, 30% year over year, uh, fairly regarded. I think it was number two, two or three, depending on how you count in that kind of market at the time. High profile CEO, I've been written up as CEO of the year in a couple of places. Uh, I'd been brought in by the uh, the controller there to run FPNA at the time. I was a director of FPNA. Um, Trying to uh, put in some of the little more disciplined processes and so forth that I had learned at IBM, quite frankly. She, was, she honestly told me that's why she hired me. Um, it was a very nimble, uh, it was a fairly decent sized company at that point, mid level company. I was on NASDAQ, uh, public on NASDAQ. But again, it was a uh, very fast growing, very entrepreneurial in spirit and so forth. Uh, right around that time, uh, fairly short into my tenure there, the company had uh, some accounting issues. Uh, like, you know, not unlike some other software uh, companies back in that, going back through time and that, certainly in that era, some classic rev rec issues had, had come up. Uh, some contracts had not been accounted for appropriately in uh, a small number of places uh, around the world. It was a global company. And um, a couple things from that. Number one, it kind of threw the company into this crisis situation um, where um, it it took a company, at the end of the day, Informix actually had to restate its earnings for a period of time based on unwinding some of those contracts and accounting for them in a more conservative fashion. Um, the company uh, was delayed in some of its filings with NASDAQ for a while, so it became this kind of all-hands-on-deck process at the end, including myself, to get things you know, refiled at, at the printer and, and, and uh, SEC documents um, filed on time. <clears throat> And the company went through a transformation of how to do things in a different manner going forward, all that. So the senior management ended up uh, changing. And um, you know, I saw that transformation of a company into a more maybe disciplined way of managing the company. Still had, a, still had very aggressive growth targets and et cetera, but it had to be disciplined. And I, and I kind of mentioned this. I thought about this one uh, when I was thinking about this, this podcast because um, you know, my early days at IBM, when, all, when whoever's worked at IBM going through those early days, it, it does feel a little bureaucratic at times. And you're wondering why you have all these process controls in place. And in this particular instance, I saw how a company could get brought, almost brought to its knees, so to speak, where due to, quite frankly, some control uh, deficiencies. And it wasn't the case where uh, everything was not proper. It was a very hardworking folks, professional group of accounting folks, but there were some, you know, control issues in a few spots that didn't get caught. Maybe the culture was a little bit too much of not questioning and not, you know, dotting the I's across the T's. There's a couple of places and it, and it came back to bite you. So I've taken that lesson with me, actually, the rest of my career, um, always trying to find the right balance of process and, 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 and controls over, over business processes. Um, but obviously in the context of not slowing things down too much, just having the right amount, so to speak. Now, you mentioned there was a, a management change. Was it, was the CFO, was there a new CFO brought in as well? Yeah, CEO and, um, and CFO both both changed over, um, uh, both people that I uh, high respect for. Uh, but you know, kinda, it was kind of the company had to go through some transformations around that time and um, uh, in that type of situation um, and uh, the company moved forward.
When we return, CFO Chris Mosler enters the mentoring round. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Hi, we're back with CFO Chris Mosler, and we'll begin the mentoring round with this question. As always, what is it, Chris, that's exciting you about finance and business today? You know, the, the, I think a lot of people talk about this. This is not particularly surprising, but, you know, the role of, of finance being more of a, a strategic partner to the business uh, has been well, well written about. I'm sure most of your other podcast guests have talked about it. Um, but to me, what's exciting is sort of the, uh, the just the nature of the new tools, information tools, data tools being available uh, to finance professionals that really allow them to play that role uh, in a greater and greater extent. Uh, being able to do research, being able to analyze data. Um, it always takes the interpersonal aspects to be able to summarize and, and bring that data forward professionally to be able to influence business decisions and to gain confidence uh, and so forth. But uh, to me, that's sort of the, 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 the nature of the plumbing of finance. Uh, is evolving much like the rest of the world is evolving in IT tools, uh, data governance tools, data tools that you know finance professionals can be much more impactful um, based on the tools at their disposal. So I want you to uh, think back now for us the first time you took on the CFO role, and that was prior to Piranova. You had a CFO tour of duty. But the first time you, you stepped into that office and it was yours, I'm wondering uh, if there's a piece of advice you if you could go back and give yourself a piece of advice, what would it be? I ask this all sorts of ways, but it's it's intended to to be like that first week or that first month. If there's something you would have told yourself, um, and obviously what I'm getting at is there was something that probably surprised you um, at the time. And anything come to mind? Yeah, I think I'll answer a little bit more broadly, perhaps. But um, you know, to me, if I had to go back to my uh... <laughs> To my professional self earlier in my career, um, I would have uh, hounded myself to uh, to learn the art of networking and uh, the professional practice of practice of networking uh, to the greatest extent possible. <clears throat> um, you know, we're all human beings; we're all different in, in things we're good at and bad at. Um, <clears throat> I fall somewhere in the middle, I suppose. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily come always natural to me. And, you know, in the, in the early part of my career, up the middle of my career, you know, you have to do networking, obviously, to be successful. Um, but I viewed it, if I look back at myself more from, you know, within my company, within my rounds of finance and, and the groups I supported, perhaps, how did you do that? But as you evolve in your career to a CFO role, I found the, the need and the reliance on networking to become, uh, you know, 100x, so to speak. Um, you know, you find yourself as CFO running a company, right? You're managing investors' money. You're trying to be a business partner to your CEO. You're again, your stewardship of the assets and the people of the company, and and uh, being very. And I've been intended to be in uh, at least start in smaller startups and grow them. 
you know, there's not a lot of resources around you. And having a network of colleagues in the industry, in finance, professional finance people, professional entrepreneurs, professional senior leaders, that you can turn to for advice, to bounce ideas off of, uh, to learn from, uh, is invaluable. So uh, I've certainly done that in the second half of my career. I wish I perhaps would have started that a little bit earlier to have a, an even larger network. Okay, great, great example. We always ask uh, for finance leaders to think a little bit about their own personal habits and, and routine. And we're trying to uncover habits or uh, something you do during the course of your day that you think in some ways has contributed uh, on the professional side, maybe making life a little more uh, doable for you, whatever it might be. Does anything come to mind when we ask for a personal habit or routine that you have that's contributed to your professional success? Yeah, Jack, certainly. Um, a, cu a couple of things come to mind to me. And I'll, I'll first preface this by saying, uh, I think a lot of people do probably say, you got to exercise, you got to do work-life balance, et cetera. And to me, those, it's almost like table stakes. <laughs> you work in a senior level finance role, uh, especially in tech. Uh, you know, there's an enormous amount of work to do, enormous amount of, uh, uh, pressure, et cetera. And if you don't balance that somehow, you're, you're just not going to, not going to get there. But, but for me, what I've, I found a couple things come to mind for this question. Uh, one is about 10 years or so ago, um, I had a friend of mine pay it forward to me where he referred me to a coach that he had used, a uh, professional coach. And this is, um, and I got, just got extremely lucky, uh, divine providence, I don't know, whatever, but I got pointed to this person and uh, this is someone who does this as uh, he was a successful guy, uh, retired fairly early, and he kind of just mentors people uh, in groups and individually. And, um, you know, we hit it off, took me under his wing, and uh, we've kept in touch ever since, have coffee regularly. And I found just having that sounding board to uh, tell him the situations I'm in, uh, get his perspective on uh, things in his career, how he handled them. He'll invariably give me five answers to something, and I'll, I'll pick the best one <laughs> that I think I can actually implement on my end. Um, uh, so he's, I, I found it invaluable for me, and I would really encourage anyone else to do that in whatever capacity they they have on that. Um, you know, he's a bit of my advisor, my friend, my shrink. I don't know, all wrapped into one, and uh, <clears throat> it's really it's really helped me quite a bit. The, you know, the second thing I'll mention a little bit is um, you, you got to keep your sense of humor about yourself. I um, it's a little bit my nature. <laughs> I like to joke around quite a bit. And, uh, you know, a lot of what we do in finance is serious stuff. Uh, there's often a lot of pressure, especially when you're in a startup role and talking about some of the things I've talked about, you know, when you're, you're trying to raise money and you know that if you're not particularly good at it or if you're not successful at it, it might be the end of your company. Uh, you know, you got, you got you to let off some steam somehow. So I found uh, keeping a sense of humor about yourself, not thinking too high, highly about yourself will will do you a favor in most situations, whether it's a board, a CEO, or your own staff. Can you? Can I ask, is there a ballpark as far as what you've raised to date? Yeah, I've lost track a little bit, but I, I know it's over $100 million of equity. Um, I've, I've handled some debt transactions as well along the way, probably in the, the 5 to $10 million range. Um, so, yeah, it all, it all kind of blurs together, but it, uh, it's, it's been a, quite a journey and a, and a fun one. So we uh, always ask, and I, I should have mentioned this up front, uh, I usually do, but do, would you have a book 
you, you'd like to recommend or something that, uh, you know, struck a chord with you in the not too distant past? Yeah. I'll mention two, uh, one, one may have come up before with your listeners, I imagine, but, um, the, the first 90 days by Michael Watkins, um, was my particular mentor at the time, actually, that suggested I, 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 I thoroughly read that. And, um, that helped me on the particular situation I was in and I've used it ever since. Um, you know, the concepts there are a little bit oriented towards coming, walking into a new job. How do you, how do you gain your footing? How do you get early wins? Manage your early time for, for success. But it's really quite practical for any situation in the business. Um, you know, just uh, figuring out the best path, path forward. And then and the second one I've read actually more recently, um, uh, it's called Red Notice by Bill Browder. It's an interesting story about uh, a finance guy who uh, ended up going, you know, this thing where he raised money in Russia and all, all kinds of interesting things happened out of that. He was chased out of Russia through the corruption there. He ended up uh, taking his case with some horrible things that happened up to the U.S. Uh, Congress leaders. And I, I, I was just thinking, I read that book. I, I just felt his risk-taking ability just kind of amazed me, the things he went and did. Um and I've always liked variety in my career, and um, and I read that book and think, wow, this guy, this guy's uh, on steroids for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a twist between finance and espionage. We need more books like that. Uh, well, mm-hmm. a great choice. Thank you. We haven't had that one before, I believe. So uh, we are finally up to our last question, where I get to ask you to look forward for us. And that's particularly challenging now. This question was uh, easy 60 days ago for so many, not anymore. Uh, but what are your, your priorities as you look forward now over the next 12 months? As a finance leader, what are your priorities? Yeah. And um, <laughs> given I'm sitting here at home under a shelter in place order, my, the first priority clearly is to... Uh, is to manage our company over the next couple of months to um, to make sure that we uh, hopefully don't lose any efficiency and effectiveness in, in, our, in meeting our short term goals, um, and uh, you know that's certainly a new challenge to, to these times. Um, other than that, you know the challenges I have are, are much the same uh, for Pernova. You know we raised we raised uh, a good financing last fall. Uh, we announced a thirty million financing. It's going to take us for a while. Uh, we have goals, milestones that I've talked about in this podcast to get us to uh, what would hopefully be a, a large kind of growth round uh, in the future. And, um, you know, we got to make sure we get there. So it's making sure that we're hitting the, the near-term milestones and how are we tweaking our strategy to hit the next ones. Chris Moslar, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thanks, Jack. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. 
Thank you for listening.